um, and I'm grateful that we get to resume our series in First John. Um, you know, the initial reason for our delay was uh, just the anticipation of a short layoff because of the shelter-in-place orders. But as you are all aware, um, over time, this this in, this initially short layoff became longer and longer. And you know, now we we're, we're possibly reopening a little bit on Monday, but uh, who knows what it's going to be like. Um, you know, I was able to do a little bit of a count. We've been apart from each other at least um, at least in person for nine weeks. It's been nine weeks since we've been able to see each other. Um, and uh, you know we're grateful that the Lord has given us Zoom, but uh, you know it is uh, it is something um, that we do miss. We miss the in-person interactions with one another. Um, so uh, over the past nine weeks, though, we have been served well by some of our uh, some of our brothers in the fellowship. Uh, we're grateful for Drew, Brian Lim, Tony, Brian Chang, Tim Chin. Thank you, brothers, for your labor of love, preparing uh, devotions for us, and uh, just sharing a little bit of what God's been teaching you. We're, we're so grateful for that. Um, and uh, you know, you even allowed for for me to to figure out how to do ministry in, in the future. I uh, just trying to sort all these different uh, things out and challenges out. So thank you brothers for your sacrifice. We appreciate you so much. Um, now our meeting together may still continue to take place in this online format for the foreseeable future. Uh, since guidelines for churches to reopen are still forthcoming, I guess, if you want to put it that way. Uh, but while we're waiting for those guidelines, we want to resume our ministry. We want to, like pa Pastor Henry said a few weeks ago, try and resemble a, some sort of uh, of normalcy, some semblance of normalcy. And um, so, so we're going to start back up in First John again. So please turn with me in your Bibles to First John 3, 19 to 24. 1 John 3, 19 to 24. So um, the Apostle John writes this, do not be surprised, brethren. Oh, sorry. Verse 19. I'm a, I'm a 13. I don't know why I'm a 13. Verse 19. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him in whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful for uh, this evening for uh, how you allow for us to gather together. And we pray that, Lord, as we uh, study your word together, that you would be honored and glorified. We know that this uh, passage doesn't have a lot of new material for us to consider. And yet, um, that is the reason why we need it all the more. It's because we're familiar with it. And so we pray that as we uh, look at this familiar text, that we would see different nuances that maybe we haven't seen before. Uh, we pray that you would help us to see, uh, or even just to think uh, even more deeply about how we might apply your word to our lives, especially because it is a familiar thing that we're studying tonight. So, Father, we pray that you'd be glorified. Help us to uh, walk away from the study uh, with a greater love for you. And uh, it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, we live in a generation that likes to pull our knowledge together to help others make good decisions. We call that Yelp or reviews. You know, uh, well, most of us don't really take a lot of time to leave reviews for the products that we buy or the restaurants that we try. We rely heavily on reviews to make sure that we get the best possible product or experience. And this is not limited to us here in the college career demographic. Uh, even our parents know how to do this now. And my dad, when he wants to go look up a restaurant, he's going to Yelp, right? Why is it? Why is it that peer reviewed input has become so integral to the way that we live our lives? 
Well, even though we know that peer review doesn't necessarily guarantee that our experiences will be the same, we want some form of assurance or guarantee that what we experience will be great since, after all, we're spending our hard-earned money. As Christians, there may be times when we may be tempted to doubt the validity of our faith. Whether it is a result of our familiarity with our own sin, a, a challenging evangelism conversation, trials, or something else, most of us will face doubt at some point in our lives. It's been almost two months, but as some of you remember, John writes to his audience in order to assure them of their salvation. He's trying to remind them of the guarantee, the concrete guarantee that they have of, of their salvation after false teaching threatened the church and upset the faith of many through, um, through the false teacher's claim of having a higher knowledge, a higher level of spirituality that was not found in the scriptures. You and I, we don't uh, necessarily face that threat of false teaching upsetting our faith at this particular moment, uh, but some of us need encouragement in our Christian walk, as perhaps it feels like our faith is growing stale due to the lack of seeing one another and basically being trapped at home. This evening, we're going to take a look at two assurances, two assurances of salvation that are a result of our love for one another. Two assurances of salvation that are a result of our love for one another. The first assurance of salvation that is a result of our love for one another is the assurance of God's acceptance. The assurance of God's acceptance. Verse 19, we will know by this that we are of the truth. The first thing we must ask as we read John's word is what the word this refers to here in this sentence, in the first half of the sentence. Now, this could mean anything. So we have to look at the, the closest uh, referent. And when we look back at verse 18, it becomes very clear that the last thing that John, John specifically uh, spoke about was the word love. It, he, it was um, the verb love. And as you know, uh, Maybe you need a refresher. You can read some of the context for that. Uh, as you know, though, this is not a vague or general kind of love. It's very specific. Verse 18 explains that we are not to love with mere expressions of love, just simply saying that we love people, but we are to love one another with our actions. These actions or deeds that we do towards one another are not left up to our own interpre interpretation, however. They are deeds which are influenced by our understanding of the truths that are found in the scripture. Now, John, he, he tells Christians that they know that they are of the truth if, uh, uh, if they, um, or uh, sorry, they'll know that they will know that they're of the truth if they have a genuine faith in God through their acts of practical love towards one another. And that ought to sound familiar to you. Um, in the book of James, James says in James 2, 15 to 17, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it, is, uh, if it has no works, is dead by itself. James' point here is that genuine faith doesn't just say words towards those in need. Um, it doesn't just say, I love you, but doesn't back it up. Our genuine faith is backed up through action. It is confirmed through how we live, right? We can say to one another, I love you, but that means absolutely nothing if we aren't willing to demonstrate that love towards one another. I mean, for instance, uh, we say that we love all sorts of things, right? We love to sleep, we love chocolate. We love pizza. What does that, what does that mean? Right? It, it can mean almost nothing. So when we say that we love one another, it has to be backed up with practical action. Both John and James affirm that genuine faith is a faith that acts upon what God's word teaches. Simply saying you have faith doesn't mean that you have saving faith through Jesus Christ. The proof is in the pudding. If you say that you believe in Jesus Christ, the reality of that faith in God will be verified through your love for others. 
you know, we can throw that word love around to describe our relationships with fellow believers here at church. But, you know, just because you say you love people doesn't mean that you actually show a biblical love towards one another, the kind of love that is described in the scriptures. And it's not just what we think of as acts of love, but it has to be the love that God says we're to show towards one another. Because God is love, he sets the definition of love. Now, you'll notice that John, he uses the future tense here. He says, we will know. Um, to, and he says this to explain when Christians can have confidence in their salvation. Christians will eventually experience assurance of salvation by how they love other believers over time. Since only the genuinely converted will love others in the sacrificial way that John describes in verses 16 through 18. You are all aware that genuine love towards one another, as described in verses 16 and 18, it can be shown by people who are not Christians, right? People who are not Christians, they are capable of loving one another. That actually is uh, one of God's common graces that he allows for us to experience. So other people can show love towards one another. Um, there are plenty of people who are, who are kind. There are plenty of people who can give large sums of money to charitable causes. A lot of people can show love in those ways. And, and we even know of Christians or people who claimed that they were Christians who walk the walk, talk the talk, for a time at least, but then afterwards over a long period of time, they walk away, right? So that's why John says, we'll know in the future. It has to be proven over time. You still have to prove it out. And John's not saying that we have to earn our salvation in this way, but that over time, the genuineness of our faith will be proved through our continual acts of love towards one another. Um, love itself is not everything when it comes to our assurance of salvation. But what we see is that true love for one another in the family of God ought to be what we are characterized by over the long haul. Right? It's, it also tells us that though Christian love might be imitated by others, Christian love is distinct from other forms of love. You've heard that expression before, often imitated, but it's uh, but you can't fake the real thing, right? As a result, Christians should be some of the most loving, gracious, and sacrificial people the world sees, because those of us who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, who unifies us all. And if we can't love one another after we've been unified by Christ, and we really ought to pause and ask why we can't love one another as Christ commands us to. There, was there were plenty of barriers. Ephesians 2, 13 to 15 tells us that there were plenty of barriers between, uh, between all the people who comprised the church. But because of God's grace, he brought us together. Right? He unified us in himself. And because of that, because of that unity that we have in Christ, we ought to be the most loving people especially towards one another, right? That's what defines our relationship with one another. Now, in the second half of verse 19 and the beginning of verse 20, John writes, um, and will assure our heart before him in whatever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our heart and knows all things. So John recognizes that there will be times when some Christians will doubt whether they've been truly saved. And haven't we all been there? Or haven't we all been there? We know what it's like to look back on a particularly challenging stretch of our lives where sin seems to win all the time. And we're wondering, does God forgive me? Will God forgive me? Will he accept me? Now, what we see here is that the troubled heart or the worried conscience of a genuine Christian may be tempted to believe that they've sinned too much. They've sinned so much that there is no possible way that God will forgive them. Perhaps they believe that the hope of forgiveness of sins is just too good to be true. How is it that 
faith in Jesus Christ is enough to save someone from their sins. Um, I remember in uh, Les Miserables, right? That's one of the that's one of the lines that uh, the police captain is asking: Can can God actually forgive someone's sins? I, I was sitting next to to someone uh, from church uh, watching the the latest version of Les Miserables, and I started laughing because you know when uh, when the police captain is saying, "Can someone actually can, can God actually save someone from his sins?" Well, of course we as as Protestant Christians, we know that's true. And so I started laughing and then I got a nice punch uh, from, uh, from, my, from my neighbor, from my friend, because it was, uh, he was like, come on, man. Um, but is it possible for, for God to actually forgive sin? Absolutely, because he says so. Right? It's because he says so. When the, when the troubled heart or the worried conscience is overburdened by their sin, they are right to recognize the seriousness with which God treats sin. But those who doubt must remind themselves of the truthfulness and trustworthiness of God's word when they are tempted not to believe in the mercy and grace of God. When we are tempted to doubt, we're tempted not to believe in the mercy and grace of God. We think that there must be some other way but brothers and sisters, if God wanted more than our faith and our repentance, he would have surely asked for more. But that's not what we find in his word. And recall 1 John 1, 9. John tells us that if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so what we see there is your forgiveness is guaranteed. It is completely dependent upon the faithfulness of God to forgive our sins. If God was not faithful, then you can doubt. If he is able to fail, then you can doubt. But he is faithful, right? He's completely faithful. He himself will cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness, unrighteousness from our past, from our present, and from our future. No matter what your sin is, God is willing to forgive us our sins. And it is for that reason that Paul says in Romans 8.1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? In Christ Jesus. Unified in Christ Jesus. And that is a great comfort to those who may be tempted to think that belief in Christ is not enough. When we're in Christ... It's everything to us. There's no more condemnation. Sure, there might be discipline, right? Corrective discipline, but that's not condemnation. That's correction. And so, brothers and sisters, when we demonstrate genuine Christian love towards others as a result of our faith in Christ, even if our hearts rightly remind us of the seriousness of our sins, we know confidently that the God who promised forgiveness for our sins will be faithful to keep that promise. He'll be faithful to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Our hearts may condemn us. Our hearts may fail to keep God's word completely, but God knows and understands our hearts completely. That's what it says here, right? He knows our hearts. He is greater than our hearts. He does not excuse our sin, but he will not abandon us either. And though God will hold us responsible for continued growth in godliness, um, he, he may discipline us to help us grow in our godliness, uh, that, but that discipline is for our good. And so there is no possibility whatsoever of us losing our salvation. So be encouraged. Be encouraged. Verse 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So if our, hearts, if our heart does not condemn us, we who are walking rightly before God can have confidence. We can have boldness and expectation that we can come before a holy God, not as a, as a cowering subject, but as a son or daughter who is welcomed into the presence of the king. You can, you can walk into the presence of the king with head held high, eyes fixed on the king because of Christ. 
Now we know that we cannot at this moment appear physically before God, um, at least in his throne room. Right? We're, we're still waiting for that day. But the way that we can come before God in this life is through worship and through prayer. John tells us that we can have confidence before God in our worship, both when our hearts condemn us and when our hearts don't condemn us. But oh, what a greater assurance and comfort we have knowing that we have no reason to be ashamed when we are walking rightly with the Lord. When you're not stuck in your sin, you have every reason to, and, and every confidence to believe that when you pray to God, he'll listen to you and answer you. But when your conscience is bothering you because you are in sin, those doubts will creep in. And when we, uh, and this is really why we strive to be as, as uh, Christ-like as we can in this life now, because we know that our sin drives a wedge between us and God. His, he's too holy to be associated with sin. And so we strive for holiness because we want to get closer to our God. The holier we are, the closer we get to him. It's not so that we can thumb, thumb our nose at people and say, I am holier than you. I am better at you than obeying the Bible or whatever it might be, right? That's not why we want to be holy. We don't want to be like those portrayals of Christians in the mainstream media where we're stuck up, hypocrites, holier than thou, etc., etc. We don't want to be like that. Rather, we want to be as holy as possible so that we can get as close to God as possible. If you believe that he is the best thing ever, the greatest treasure ever, you strive to be holy so that you can get more of God. And that's exactly why we as Christians are always in the business of helping each other become more like Jesus. Not only should we be holy because the God we love and worship is holy, but we should also strive to be holy because of that unshaken confidence we can have knowing that we can go to God in prayer and say, Abba, Father, and he listens. That's what we want. And so when we encourage you to read your Bibles, when we encourage you to love one another, to, to have times of intentional prayer with one another, this isn't just so that you can be, so that you can check off a box and feel like you're morally okay. That's not the reason why we, we encourage you to do that. We encourage you to do that because we believe that God is worth it, that he is a treasure worth pursuing. And so because he's a treasure worth pursuing, we're egging each other on saying, go get it, go get it, go get it. Or actually, more grammatically correct, go get him, go get him, go get him. Right? This, is the, this is the confidence that we can have before God in prayer. And, and it assures us that we've truly been forgiven because he hears our prayer of repentance. We know that if we've, that if, if, uh, we've truly been saved, he has heard not only our prayer of repentance, but he hears every single other prayer after that, and he answers them all. Um, and there's other benefits as well. Verse 22, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. So you see, God does not merely hear our prayers for forgiveness. He hears all of our prayers, and he answers our prayers. Now, upon hearing this verse, there are some people who may get the impression that all we need to do to get whatever we want is to please God, and then he's going to give us whatever we ask of him. And it's certainly understandable why some people will come to this conclusion while reading this verse, but if you look at the conditions upon which we receive whatever we ask of God, uh, there are some important nuances that help us understand what John means here. Now, the first nuance to answered prayer is seen when we keep God's commandments. And this, of course, implies obedience to God. So when we pray to God, how is the state of our walk with God? How is the state of our walk with God? Now, I know, you know, I've asked a few of you this question before, and, um, Almost always, actually, if you ask any Christian, it doesn't really have to be centered on you. You can even ask me this and I'll tell you the same thing, right? It can always be better, right? That's our, that's our common response, right? How'd you walk with God? It can always be better. That's true, right? And, and, and instead of being, being complacent with that, instead of being okay with that, brothers and sisters, let's push forward. Let's push forward, right? And I'm walking right there with you, okay? 
I'm not singling you out. I'm not trying to make any of you feel guilty. That's me too. All right, let's do this together. When we consider how is the state of our walk with God, we, we always need to be striving forward. You know, we have to ask ourselves, are we right with him? Do we have unconfessed sin in our lives? Do we have sins in our lives that we are not putting to death? That's important. It's so important for us to, to think about. And what are your pet sins that you allow to live? We're supposed to put it all to death. But there are some that we hold a little close to our chest that we don't let anyone touch. Those are the ones that have to die, brothers and sisters. Right? And these questions are not to imply that we have to be absolutely perfect in order for God to hear our prayers. We know that's not true. But these questions are meant to get us to examine ourselves carefully. We can think that we're right with God, but it's also very easy for us to be self-deceived. Would God agree with our assessment of our righteousness before him? Would he agree with that? Would he agree that we're okay? And, and that's why we always have to be pushing forward and, and striving for more. It's because uh, if we take seriously our sin, we can never be satisfied with where we're at. Right? Don't be complacent, brothers and sisters. We got to push. We got to push. We got to strive for more holiness. Um, and don't deceive yourselves. Don't listen. Don't listen to your hearts when your heart tells you that you're just fine. Don't listen to your heart when your heart tells you, well, I might be in sin, but God will understand. Don't listen to your heart. God doesn't give us any excuses in that realm. God calls us all to die to sin, to put that sin aside, to put on righteousness. Sure, he understands the, the reasons why we might be tempted to sin, but he still calls us to holiness. He has grace for us when we fail. But brothers and sisters, that is not permission for us to continue on in our sin boldface. God certainly hears the prayers of those who are not righteous before him, but he is not inclined to answer the prayers of those who are not righteous, unless, those are the, prayer, unless the prayers are those that he delights to answer, prayers of repentance, prayers that are done according to his will. This is no blank check. This is no blank check. Now, the second nuance to answered prayers is that we do the things that are pleasing in God's sight. We do the things that are pleasing in God's sight. This is similar to keeping God's commandments, but this nuance that John brings in, in uh, to help us understand that uh, straight up obedience to God is not necessarily the most important, uh, uh, is, is not the most um, important thing that matters in the sense that motive matters too, right? You can obey, but if your motive is wrong, then you haven't really obeyed. You haven't really obeyed. You haven't really honored God in the way that you obeyed. When, when we obey, do we have as our underlying motivation a desire to please God because we love him? Or are we motivated by other things? Are we motivated by wanting other people's approval? Are we motivated by a desire for reward, perhaps? Uh, I mean, it's not necessarily wrong to be motivated by reward, but if that's your only motivation towards obedience, that's not a good enough of a reason. God doesn't want us to obey him and please him just because we want things. He wants us to obey him and to please him because we love him. Obedience for any other reason is to act as a mercenary or a contractor, only obeying for personal benefit, but not out of a desire to please, to please God, not out of a desire to love God. God doesn't offer a blank check of answered prayer as long as we obey him. He's not a genie who says, your wish is my command. Our prayers must come from a right heart, an obedient heart that loves him and that seeks him first and foremost, and that seeks his will to be done first and foremost. Now, 
more discussion on how God answers prayers will have to come from another sermon. But what, what John wants us to see specifically here is that the assurance of salvation, the assurance of God's acceptance of us into his family allows for us to confidently and boldly come before him knowing that he hears and answers our prayers. If we truly love God's people, if, uh, then we have reason to believe that our faith is genuine since love for the family of God is meant to distinguish true Christians from the world. The way that we love one another is supposed to be so radically different that people can recognize that the love that we show for one another is even more distinct. It goes even further than what the world considers to be caring. And this type of love is all motivated by desire to obey God and to keep his commandments. And so we don't love so that we can merely win friends to ourselves or look good in front of others. We love because love among the family of God proves our acceptance into the family of God. It's like a receipt that demonstrates that we are in the family of God. That's what it is. Okay, but that's not the only assurance that our love for one another provides us. There's a second assurance of salvation that is a result of our love for one another, and that is the assurance of God's abiding or abiding with God, but uh, the assurance of God's abiding. Verse 23, this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. The most important commandment that we keep is that we believe in the name of God's Son, Jesus. Now, you'll notice that there is an intentional shift by John from the word, from the word commandments, plural, to commandment, singular. Now, some people might say that this transition is out of place, but John's purpose here is absolutely intentional. There are many commandments that are important even for Christians to observe, but the most important commandment of God that Christians have to obey, uh, which sets up and enables obedience to the other commandments, is singularly that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Right? That sets up everything. Everything hinges on believing in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, notice that John could have simply said that you believe in his in. God's Son, Jesus Christ. He doesn't need to specify that belief is in the name of Jesus Christ, and yet he does. Right? Charismatics will, will do this all the time, right? They'll tell you something like, in the name of Jesus, I tell you, come out of him, or in the name of Jesus, I tell you, be healed, right? They always say something about, in the name of Jesus, why? Right? That's what you ought to be asking. That's what we ought to be thinking about when we see this, because that, that phrasing is, uh, is not just there because John randomly decided to put it there. So why does John tell us that we are to believe in the name of God's Son, Jesus Christ? Okay, hold your place. Here in 1 John, we're going to go on a bit of a theological field trip for a moment. And I promise it has payoff. Okay, promise that. I'm not taking you here just, just because it's cool. Um, now, it's, it is, it is uh, easy for us to bypass the words uh, in the name or the name and not wonder why it's there. And, and um, we ought to wonder why it's, it's there because it's, it does seem a little out of place. And every time it, something seems out of place, you should check it out. Now, we first see the concept of calling upon the name of the Lord in Genesis 4, 26, when the people who were on the earth following the birth of Seth so these are uh, some of the other descendants of Adam and Eve who are walking around the earth. They began to call upon the name of the Lord. And um, what that means is these men, they at that time began to worship God. Throughout the history of the Old Testament, God invites his people to call upon him or specifically to call upon his name. Right? It's an, and, and when we call upon his name. It's in faith and in trust. And he promises that when they do so, he will deliver them. Okay, you can see that in Psalm 50. That's Psalm 50, verse 15, 1, 5. Right, Psalm 50, verse 15. Psalm 91, verse 15. Jeremiah 33, 3. And Joel 2, 32. Now that last one, Joel 2.32, you're probably thinking, man, minor prophet, who cares? You should care. You should care. Because in Acts 2, when Peter is preaching to the, 
to the, to the mass crowds of people and telling them what they must do to be saved, he tells them, he quotes to them Joel 2.32, and he tells them that if they believe in the name of Jesus, they will be saved. Uh, you can even look there with me right now. Um, he says, um, he's, so Acts 2.38, Peter said, uh, or um, uh, just slightly before in verse 37, the crowds asking, brethren, what shall we, uh, what shall we do? How shall we be saved? Peter says to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, actually, sorry, I skipped where I was supposed to go. Um, but uh, let's see. Oh, oh, sorry. Back to 221. 221. There's a lot from Joel 2 that's there. There's more than Joel 2, but uh, Acts 221, it says, and it shall be that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's why Peter says later um, in that verse that I uh, had referenced that you are to repent and believe and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin. That matters. Okay. And, and that matters because when we believe upon the name, we call upon the name of Jesus Christ. That is how salvation is granted to us. That's how the Holy Spirit is granted to us. And we're going to see the significance of that later. Now, there are a lot of passages in the scriptures that talk about or that have the language of calling upon the name of the Lord in the Old Testament. And that's actually often used of worship in general, even of false gods. Um, we don't have time to delve into all of that tonight. I already kind of took you on a greater field trip than I intended. Um, but uh, what I want to emphasize to you is that calling upon the name of the Lord is a call upon God to answer, a call upon God to save. It's a request that God act according to his mercy and his grace to save sinners. When he invites people to call upon his name, and he says he will surely deliver. That's what we're doing. We're, we're responding to that call. And we're receiving that forgiveness. So calling upon the name of the Lord is significant because it acknowledges, one, the power of the one name of Jesus Christ to forgive sins. Right? Salvation is found in no other name but Jesus Christ. It's because he alone died on the cross for sins and rose again. Right? So the power of the one name is significant. And two, the reason why calling upon the name of the Lord is significant is because it demonstrates our absolute dependence upon Jesus Christ to provide salvation for our sin. If you and I have to do works in addition to believing in Jesus Christ, that means that we rely on ourselves to save ourselves. But that's not true. That's not what we see. We absolutely depend on the power of Jesus Christ to provide our salvation from sin. And so, going back to 1 John, when John uses this language to describe God's commandment for people to believe in his son, in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, he is reminding his readers, God is not asking you to keep his commandments and please him on your own strength. That is impossible for you to do on your own for an extended period of time. God is not asking you to accomplish the heart change that is only possible through his grace, through your sheer force of will. He wants you to rely upon him and him alone for your salvation. That's the reason why you can be assured of it. If we recognize that salvation is solely the work of God to radically change hearts and give new life, then our assurance of salvation no longer hangs upon whether we're good enough, whether we go to church enough or whatever the enoughs, but it relies entirely upon God and his faithful work. The power of the one name is immense. And that's why John reminds us that the most important command for us to keep is to believe upon the name of Jesus Christ and to keep believing in the name of Jesus Christ. It's not enough for you to just to believe it in him once, right? You have to keep believing. But notice, there is a second command here as well. John tells us that we are to love one another just as Jesus 
commanded us. Now, in John's gospel, John has previously recorded Jesus telling his disciples that they are to love one another. We see that in John 13, 34, and John 15, 12. These commands are referred to throughout this letter, and uh, John uses it to remind Christians that love for one another is a command that Christ himself emphasized to his followers. So this love that we have towards one another is not primarily one of feeling, but of will, of choice. We've been taught almost all of our lives that love is a feeling, and it is in part However, the love that God has for us while we were yet sinners is not a love of feeling, but a love of choice. If it was a love of feeling, then he could easily fall out of love with us and act toward us in wrath when he's had enough of us. All right, this, this concept of falling out of love, it's, it's that reason that so many people in the world, celebrities, government officials, even our own our friends and family, they decide that their particular marriages must come to an end when they no longer have these feelings of love towards their spouse. But that's not what we see in the scriptures. In Deuteronomy 7, 7 to 11, Moses reminds the people that God did not set his love on them. He didn't choose to love them them because of their size, but he loved them because he loved them, and he kept his promise towards their forefathers, and as a result, the Israelites were to respond by seeking to know God and to love him. Romans 5 tells us a similar story, right? We were not just sinners. We were the enemies of God. We deserved God's wrath, but he himself chose to set his love on us, to place it upon us, to offer it to us freely. He offered us that free gift of salvation that's found only in his son because he loved us while we were still helpless, while we were still his enemies. So if love is in fact primarily an act of will, and choice. Just ask anyone who uh, has to watch little kids for an extended period of time. Love is an act of will and of choice. That we must be careful to maintain this kind of love towards one another. Oh, a love of will and choice. I know that there are people who can be difficult to love in our families, in our church, and yes, even here in our fellowship. But this call for us to love one another, just as Jesus commands us to love one another, obliterates any excuse we might have to love one another. It obliterates any excuse. You can say, but, but God, you have to understand, this guy or this girl is, is like this, and they drive me crazy. You can say that. But God says, did I not love you while you were yet my enemy? Any excuse we have, gone, out the window. You can't stand on it. Does another Christian act like an enemy towards you? Yeah, we are to love even those people. Right? They are not true enemies because they are, after all, our brothers and sisters. There's a reason why we use this family language. Uh, it's because we're one in Christ. We're the family of God. So they're not our enemies. They're not true enemies anyway, but they are acting like enemies towards us. And if Jesus tells us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us in Matthew 5, how much, does that, how much more does that apply to fellow Christians who act like enemies towards us? Right? If we're to love our actual enemies, how much more are we supposed to love fellow brothers and sisters who are acting enemy-like? So much more. So much more. And as we saw earlier tonight, Love for one another is an important element of our faith that proceeds naturally from faith in Jesus Christ. It's for this reason that um, it's, it's for this reason that we consider one another family rather than merely just fellow followers. It's because we are family. We're one in Jesus Christ. The relationship that Jesus Christ brings us into with Himself brings us into relationship with one another, and. There is one more relationship that we have access to as a result of our faith in Jesus Christ, and we see that in verse 24. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. Now we know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Now you'll remember Acts 2, 21. 
when Peter says that if we repent and are baptized and believe in the name of, of uh, the Son, Jesus Christ, that we will receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given to us as a receipt, too. It's a, he's a greater receipt. He is, uh, he, we are now in relationship with him. We have been given him, and so we can have confidence um, that we are one with Christ. Now, this word that we have, abide, uh, it can be understood as to stay or remain. It's the idea of unity and inclusion. And so when we obey Christ, when we keep his commandments, we, we demonstrate that we identify ourselves completely with him. And it's not just because of what he's done for us, but it's also because of the spirit who keeps us in him. And because the spirit keeps us in him, we actually have access to relationship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit in addition to Jesus. We have a relationship with all of God. All of God. And so what we're reminded of, of here is that because of our relationship uh, with Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit and we have a relationship with, with God the Father. These are not throwaway details. And when he says here that we, um, we know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us, the Holy Spirit is confirmation. He himself confirms. He himself gives us peace when our worried consciences and our troubled hearts tell us that we're not saved. The Holy Spirit is the one who reminds us, no, you are because you believed in Jesus Christ. No, you are. Remember the word of God. If God is with us, strengthening us and enabling us to believe in him, to obey him, and to please him, then we can be assured that our relationship with Christ is solid, that our relationship with God is sure. We don't have to live a life speculating that we might be able to go to heaven if we're good enough. I was uh, watching an interview of, uh, or not an interview, but a, a memorial of uh, someone who um, claimed to be Christian, and the interviewer asked the person who was uh, possibly going to die soon. Are you going to go to heaven? Are you sure that you're going to heaven? And the, the interviewee said, I sure hope so. I sure hope so. Brothers and sisters, that doesn't have to be your response. You can say for sure. Yes, I know so. All right. Not I hope so, but yes, I know so because of Christ because of the sureness that is found in him, because of the Holy Spirit who we've received. Um, those are our, uh, that's the reason why we know we are saved. So brothers and sisters, the love that we show one another is something special. It isn't just something that we do just because God wants us to be nice to one another. We love one another because our love for one another is meant to show others that what the love between God the Father, God the Son, and Holy Spirit is like because we're unified in Christ and have a love for one another that is radically different from the self-motivated, self-interested, self-oriented love of the world. Our love for one another is truly a significant indicator of our acceptance by God into his family. And so as we live out this kind of love, the Holy Spirit will provide us that insurance that we need, that we are God's people. We know uh, during this time of COVID-19 that there is no such thing as an absolute guarantee. Uh, even, if we, uh, even if we see all the reviews in the world that tell us that something is great, there's always that chance. Right? There's always that one chance that we are the ones who get the bad experience. Thankfully, with the gospel, that's not the case. And those who have genuinely repented of their sins and believed in the name of Jesus Christ, uh, relying completely on his grace to save them from their sins, will not have their hope disappointed. They can and will have peace with God and with fellow Christians. And so while there may be people who believe themselves to be Christians, what the Apostle John has shown us throughout this letter is that there are ways for us to determine the validity of our faith. There are ways for us to confirm the validity of our faith. And this evening, we saw that having love for one another as Christians is one of the most important evaluators of faith. If we have genuine sacrificial love for other Christians that seeks their good before our own, it assures us that we've been accepted into God's family, and it assures us that we abide with God. Now, for Christians, 
the main thing, the main question we ought to be asking ourselves this evening is how are we doing when it comes to genuinely loving the brothers and sisters that God has placed in our family? I'm not talking about just loving the ones that you find easy to get along with or the ones that you like to hang out with, but what about the people who are difficult to love? How are we doing in striving to build bonds of true Christian fellowship? Not just hanging out with one another uh, because we like food, movies, and games, but making time for intentional conversations as well. Uh, and this is not to put down all those efforts of, of playing games uh, that we've had uh, over the last couple uh, weeks. Uh, that's fine. But if we want to have real fellowship with one another, it has to be intentional. It has to be centered around Christ, not just having fun. Now, more can certainly be seen here, but um, let's this is uh, let's just just get this conversation and self evaluation started with these questions. How do we build these bonds of love that ought to characterize the body of Christ? If you are here this evening and you're not a Christian, we're really glad that you're with us. We hope that. Through this evening's message, you're able to see how much God loves you and what he has done in order to make our relationship right with him right. Uh, we, we, we hope that even though the love Christians have for one another may be inconsistent, it may be continually maturing, uh, that you will be able to see that there is a life-changing power that's found in the gospel. And we pray that you would come to the realization that you need salvation. Friends, we ask that you would consider God's great love for you and that you will, will find the joyful hope that comes with knowing that all of our sins are paid for and that God is powerfully working uh, through all of our lives to bring us peace and justice everlasting in his kingdom. Will you believe in Jesus? Will you receive that gift of salvation that he offers you today? Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful to you for your love. We're grateful to you for your word and for how uh, you affirm to us your great love for us and how you even encourage us to think even deeper about how we ought to love one another, not just because we have to, not because we're commanded to, but because we love you. And that is the motivation that we uh, have to to strive to love one another. So we pray, Father, that you would help us to think deeply about this. Help us to, uh, to have good self-examination that searches the depths of our heart to, to root out any selfishness that's there, to root out any um, lack of love that's there. Help us, Lord, to strive to love one another better so that people can see that you truly can take our sins away from us. For those who are here this evening who have not placed their faith in you, we pray that, Lord, you would help them to see how much you love them and that uh, you would give them the gift of faith so that they may believe in your son, believe in the name of your son, repent and believe. Um, we're grateful, Father, for this time where we were able to go through your word, and we pray that uh, you would be glorified as we uh, break into small groups. It's your sons, and we pray. Amen.